Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are here for founders, starters, entrepreneurs, um, and also venture capitalists, angels, family offices, investment firms. Um, it's great to be here. I think we're, we've done close to 50 of these podcasts. Um, and today, we are uh, very happy to say we are joined by Apurva Ruparel, who is a general partner at uh, Venture Rock in California. Hello, uh, uh, Apurva. Welcome to, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've listened to the other podcasts that you've done. Very, very intrigued and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, and I and and uh, and right back at you. I've actually just been listening to two podcasts that you did. So <laughs> very interesting. I and and actually, um, I think um, based on our previous conversation in those podcasts, um, some of the, and some of the things you've had me thinking about that you're actually um, don't get embarrassed if I say that, but I think you're one of the intellectuals of the venture community. I think you give things a lot of thought and you dive deep and uh, that's uh, that's meant as a compliment. So so let's dive right in. Um, I wanted to jump right to something you you're, you really know a lot about, which is the transition from Web 2 to Web 3. And um, I think Web 2 is pretty well defined. Um, it's the web as we know it today, more or less. It's the five companies that dominate that space. Um, but I feel, and, and I've done probably five or 10 podcasts on this, and I still feel that Web3 is completely misunderstood, misunderestimated, um, as George Bush would say, misunderestimated. Um, can, you, can we start this by, by a description on your part of exactly what is Web3 and how you define it at Venture Rock? So... Web3 truly is definitely the next era of computing. We are still very early in the game. Um, I think Web3 will solve the most fundamental problems eventually of decentralization, not having middlemen, um, digital currency, which is not you know, kind of backed by bonds or bullion or any of that. And truly borderless nations, uh, you know, is what Web3 is about. I mean, if we go deeper in terms of technology, I don't think it makes sense for this audience. But fundamentally, it is something in the building which currently only has one application layer, which is like the tokens, if they are non-fungible or fungible. But fundamentally, we are just starting off on the protocols and the infrastructure layer and eventually the applications will come out. There are a few simple applications, like NFTs. Just to give an example, we, we don't only think of NFTs as uh, collectibles or art. NFTs can pretty much be barcodes on whiskey bottles to track them you know, from manufacturing right up to who's using it. But you know, so that, that's where we are headed. Unique barcodes can be NFTs. But I'm saying we have still not... Nobody has still kind of unlocked that potential because of the fact that there are lots of challenges. And let's talk about the challenges and how we look at transition. Like today, if you look at you, Michael, being, I mean, I from our conversation, I know how much experience you've had. You've seen all the errors, right? From, let's oh, say, I made a lot of them myself, uh, Apurva. I made a lot of them myself. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so I'm saying you've seen the tran transformation from the radio or the wired telephone world to today. So have I. But I'm saying majority of the population is still not able to even unlock the potential of Web2 in form of usage. So like my parents still struggle with internet banking, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them do. And we are already talking about Web3 where even people like me struggle unless I really hone my skills and upskill myself. You need to have a you know, wallet, a MetaMask wallet, which probably is the most used, but there are tons of wallets to kind of choose from. Um, and storage is still a big challenge, right? The IPFS is still not solving uh, a lot of storage issues. So, so I'm saying Web3 is all the goods are still far away. People have still not been able to, you know, kind of view that because applications are very few. And there is a huge challenge in terms of the transition of Web 2 to Web 3. So, so companies which will be focused on creating simpler uses of wallets, make it much more like what people are used to uh, in terms of user experience, in terms of not making errors. Like, I mean, you know, billions of dollars have been lost just because people have transferred you know, from different wallets to different wallets, which which do not come, you know, kind of talk to each other yet. So I'm saying these these are clear signs that we are a little bit far away from from Web3 yet. But it's a promising technology. We should watch out for it. We should continuously learn as the infrastructure layer is being built. And you have a um, just announced a $75 million sports and media and tech tech fund. Um, that's going to be looking at this quite closely. But to, to kind of um, um, zero in on this a bit, um, you have a company, I believe I've invested in a company called UNL. Um, and this company um, is involved in what you would call the democratization of ownership. And this seems to be very important to what you're doing. And I, I guess I have a two-part question. The first part is, is democratization of ownership antithetical to what venture capital has been traditionally, which is a few people get really rich <laughs> in the bargain? Um, uh, and 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 also, um, is it is it that, that let's focus on that because that really confuses me. How can how can a venture firm like Venture Rock, you know, live up to its whatever promises it makes to limited partners or to other investors or to its own and its own partners um, and still create this distribution democratization of wealth. That seems a pretty tough trick to me. Yeah, it is. So I'm saying if you look at traditionally uh, capitalism per se, right? Like it started off with mm -hmm. acquiring land in pre 1900s and then, it was about real estate and, you know, it made a lot of billionaires. And then when the real value assets kind of, you know, uh, were pretty much satiated, valuations crept up and the United States was always forward in terms of research and development. And with the Silicon Valley and, and, the, and the fund availability from defense organizations, it was very clear that innovation can be valued at much more from a future wealth or future valuation perspective the future value of money. And that's how the whole startup scene and venture capital came up, right? I mean, that's what history shows very clearly that the United States wanted to kind of be the dominant economy uh, owner. And that's why the startup venture capital system was pretty much invented. That's, mm -hmm. that's the reality that I've kind of learned. Having said that, of course, like in any business, 
you know you have to be truly capitalistic and there is nothing wrong or right that's the way i kind of at least mm. you know not get confused or tell myself that there are nuances which are good pretty much in everything that you build but <clears throat> you can reduce wastage you can reduce negativities that's how we look at it so let's say tier 1 vcs like you named andreessen horowitz sequoia these guys uh, are of course returning anywhere between 38 to 46% kind of irrs to their lps which is a great thing but then to be able to do that you need to pick out the best founders pick out the right space pick out the leaders in that space and focus all your follow on rounds or the large part of the capital that you've raised to you know gain the maximum returns so you know they would basically back uh, 2 out of 10 of their investments all the way to ipo and that's where they make you know sometimes 500 to 1000x returns as well mm-hmm. and that's what defines them and and if that's what defines them the only output or the you know product out of that is less and less limited partners get access to that fund because they are proven and the and the wealthier lps kind of pretty much subscribe to the whole round right and there is a tipping point in there um on the other side we believe in fundamentals so what is defined as success in venture capital i mean and you need to break that down always mm-hmm. so in in our view 76% of startups fail at a very early stage and there are clear reasons for it the reasons are because most of the time founders are raising funds they raise 3 to 4 checks pretty much before they raise series a series a is usually the kind of um how do you call it the validation of somebody's business and that mvp has been done and now there is a clear product market fit founder market fit and thus you kind of raise the series a round and then you scale your business but most of the founders don't even reach there because there are accelerators who are again trying to add value no resentment or you know any kind of disrespect there they write small checks they take 6 to 7% of the equity and then the founders have to raise more till till they reach the series a stage the way we are looking at venture capital is yeah you you got to be capitalism oriented so that only then will the lps make the returns that they that we have promised them to but mm-hmm. there are ways to increase success because if you look at venture capital only from a um business perspective it was earlier far and few and now it's pretty much everybody which fundamentally drives economies of the world which fundamentally drives smbs of the world right mm-hmm. which drives job counts now it's significant right startups employ i think 35 to 40% you know people uh, in most of the emerging countries so when you look at it from that perspective you have to reduce wastage and you have to ensure that there is increased success right mm-hmm. and that's why we think it is going to be okay to build ventures far and few so we invest in about 5 to 6 ventures in a year every year our fund structures are evergreen so that whenever there is a realization of capital in terms of exits we return the money back to the lps so that they are more encouraged to invest mm-hmm. we invest 2 to 2.5 million right at the light bulb moment or the problem solution statement stage 
which is again tough for us to find but as we grow and as our name is known more there will be a lot of incoming which is at that stage you know when a founder thinks about a problem solution statement and kind of reaches out to us um and the reason that we come at 2 to 2.5 million at that stage is that ideally the founder is then only and only busy building the business the mvp the acceleration to the series a uh, which fundamentally would come when the product market fit would happen which means early early stage traction not only do we do that we also have devised this 72 milestone program hmm. which immerses the founders more at the acceleration stage into their own business because you know when most of the founders today if you will love their business and you know they have all the rights to but they have not been questioned about a lot of dynamics that would play in, in a success of a startup things like what happens if you disagree with your co-founder what happens if there is an emergency and the co-founder has to leave what happens when a covid-19 pandemic happens uh, you know what are the customers using today apart i mean from the solution that you're building what are they using today and how are your solutions you know 3x 4x of customer experience have mm. you interviewed these customers why would they pay for your product you know those nuances which kind of are there somewhere in the subconscious but are not really asked or documented and with that the founders feel much more comfortable confident in on their own business and thus they thrive and our job is so what what we are saying is we want to create a 100% success at the stage where everybody fails the most nobody is talking about that and that's that's more stunning than anything else now why that, why is i i want to say that again so you want to you just delve down into that if you would the point where most startups fail is where you have this great focus so um and how would you describe that point precisely where most startups fail and how you address it yeah most so let's first say why startups fail mm-hmm. most of them run out of funding the second most reason is the product or the idea or the solution that they had made or envisaged will be used by everybody was just an idea it was it was nothing that people were looking for right um third the pricing was too big uh, fourth the viability of the business and the fundability and scale is not possible so these are some of the ideas and how do you so how how do people look at you know filtering those startups the way to do it is you know when you apply to an uh, accelerator some get selected some don't right then when you go to the next round pre seed round some founders get funded because of all the reasons i stated but most of them fail because they don't they are not able to raise funds so our thesis is sure we will filter problem solution statements and i'll after this i'll follow up with the thesis that we have on uh you know how we look at building a successful portfolio but but we filter out those problem solution statements which means now we are 100% sure that we want to back this founder then you write the biggest check that a founder would usually take three or four rounds of uh you know investment sourcing and then all the other risk factors like i was saying you know pricing viability fundability scalability these get solved 
with the program that we have built for the startup founders. And then we ensure that we kind of start giving insight into our partner Series A VC ecosystem right at what we call phase C of the four, four phases in how the startup is built so that by the time they graduate 18 to 24 months, uh, they would be able to then already get the investment that they were looking for. And if mostly, I'm not saying it's 100%, but like 36% failures happen after Series A. So, I mean, if, if 100 startups kind of cross the Series A graduation, uh, we've seen that 64 of them kind of move to the next stage. Mm -hmm. which is 24 when it is in the early stage. So if you were just able to make sure that every portfolio that you invest in crosses the Series A stage, there's less wastage, there's more jobs, it's better for the economy, and it still serves the the main purpose of venture capital, which is capitalism. Yeah. So that's well, the way we think about it. Well, well, a part of it, speaking of capitalism, for to write a $2.5 million check at the light bulb stage, um, I would think that you would um, take an, uh, an equity stake commensurate. That's a big commitment. Um, what, 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 what's the range of that? I'm sure it, it, it varies, um, but, but what, what kind of a stake do you have in a company when you, once you've decided you're going to put them through that 72-step plan? So we usually take positions – I mean, the lowest position that we would have ever taken is 18, but the highest mm -hmm. position that we would ever have taken is 24. Oh, okay. Right? So, there's, so there's it's not no predatory. Yeah. It's not predatory at all. It is very founder-friendly. The other thing we do for, you know, kind of being responsible towards our LPs is when we make this commitment of 2.5 million or so, 2 to 2.5 million, sometimes we also have gone to 3 is we commit to the investment and we will no, never back out because it's a binding commitment and agreement. Mm -hmm. And then we divide that investment into four phases, mm. which are spread across through those 72 milestones. So at phase A, you know, you would get, let's say, a $250,000 right now to, to mm -hmm. cross the first 18 milestones, which are fundamentally tick marks, not MRR, not ARR, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing to do with matrix of the business, but it's just to do things, right? And then as soon as you finish that, you get the next 750K. So it's pretty much like four rounds that you get. All you have to do is document your business well. And uh -huh. that that way, the founders get much more acquainted to their own business, more than they think they, they, you know, they do. At the same time, LPs know that we are very very clear we are strict at the same time you know very considerate about the investments that we make on their behalf in in companies to create more success and um so so yeah i mean it's fascinating and it's a it's a uh it sounds like a wonderful option for for founders who are lucky enough to get to work with you but um, on the Web.3 side and the democratization of wealth, if I could segue back to that just, just for a, a moment, um, I know that with you have, um, uh, there's a, I think it comes down to the applications, doesn't it? Because it's, I think one of the reasons why Web.3 
is so hard to understand is that a lot of people think it's NFTs or, you know, tokens or non-fungible tokens. Some people are familiar with the blockchain. Uh, a lot of people are familiar, but there's the applications are kind of wanting. Um, it reminds me a little bit when um, at the beginning of Web 1, uh, and actually before that, at the beginning of the personal computer, almost all the talk was about what's the killer app? What's the killer app? What's the killer app that's going to make everybody have to have a computer? And um, can you guess what the killer app turned out to be? Not really. Spreadsheet. First oh. Lotus, one, two, three, then Excel. Everybody had to have it. It was much better than by hand. <laughs> you know, so I feel that way here. So so um, in, I know you do have an application um, that you're working on whereby, um, well, I'll let you explain it. It has to do with mapping and getting people to get responsibility for a certain, their, I guess you'd say their tiny corner of the world. Yeah. How does Absolutely. that work? How does so, that work? Um, first, let me take you through how we look at, you know, the portfolio building, which would also add to the success. And then I'll, I'll take you through the UNS yeah, story. Fine. So we believe that the capital that we raise from LPs um, and we invest our own is the financial capital. The financial capital then should be utilized to buy, to build human capital, which is, of course, the founders and the teams and the industry professional network that we have, and us, which is VentureOps team. And that we should then focus to build the infrastructure capital. What is infrastructure capital? So, I mean, traditionally, historically, you've known people who made roads and railways and ports and owned those um, made the most riches because once you own the infrastructure, you can build your own application on top of it and have others build applications on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. And that generates a lot of data capital, which gives you all the nuances to further build out on that infrastructure layer or the related application. That's how we think about portfolio building and our portfolios are modular. And now I'll give you um, an insight into how we thought through that and how we built UNL and then the other ancillary organizations around it. So when the founder of UNL, who's also one of the founders of VentureOp, by the way, he was the first entrepreneur in residence mm -hmm. who built out the, as a founder and CEO UNL. The problem is multifold, but it starts from the core tech stack. So if you see latitude and longitude mm -hmm. as a technology was built by Google um, in terms of mapping and the other maps which were existing pre-Google, but that was the only way to pin a location. Mm. Now, in developed worlds like United States or Europe, that has still over a period of time matured because the technology has been in use for a long time. The planning, which was done in terms of zip codes, etc., were also very, at least, much more mature than the emerging worlds today, right? So, but when you go to Indonesia, Singapore, India, Middle East, Egypt, right? the lat-long infrastructure doesn't work because it does, it's not accurate. The accuracy is 62 to 63%, which might be around in the range of 78 to 82% here in, in the United States or in developed markets, hmm. right? So when you, when you go from place A to place B, 
if the geocoding is not accurate, drivers would get lost, which would wastage of gasoline, more carbon footprint, their loss of you know labor, the costs of goods delivered is much more higher. I mean, today in in the, in Southeast Asia and India, the cost of goods, 53% or 54% of goods costs are in deliveries. Wow. So imagine how much you can reduce for the end customer if, if you are able to deliver accurately. And it's all because of this wastage. So the vision for UNL was first, correct this. And how do you do that? The way to do that is you have to reinvent the way geocoding is done. And that's why ideally we want to be fully map agnostic, but you got to start somewhere. So we work with here technologies, which is probably the number two uh, and the number one in automobile navigation mapping in the world. They came from the Nokia Navtech world, but now they are branded mm -hmm. as here technologies. And then the open street maps, right? Because Google definitely not uh, give us um, access to it. So we want to be able to divide the entire map into one by one centimeter squares, which we've done. And all those cells are programmable cells. So you can pretty much have one cell have their own IP address or a DNS or a domain name, like, you know, like we have on the web. And then these are cells, which because they are databases, they can also understand and, you know, hold data and autocorrect themselves to, to give you the best example today my parents live you know in, in a city called Thane which is in Mumbai near Mumbai in, Ma in Maharashtra in India the address is apartment number name of the building parallel to the water pipeline opposite <laughs> this bus stop behind the palm tree you know what I'm saying now how, how do you geocode this address right Right. So, so that, and, and there are many like that across Middle East, Dubai, Saudi, even, I mean, Egypt, Indonesia, Malaysia, everybody has these kind of problems. So with geocoding, we'll be able to, we have already been able to demonstrate in a certain customers, 93% accuracy. Now that's, that's humongous because that would mean 30 to 40% cost savings on what you're delivering. Then how do you make it better? So point of interest data, right? So when somebody, let's say a Uber Eats driver is delivering food for the first time in my locality, mm -hmm. they would also keep improving the point of interest data because that's their job. Uber kind of gives them, incentivizes them to say, hey, you know what, park here. This is the closest to the location. Mm -hmm. uh, take the first elevator, not the second one, and so on and so forth. Now this point of interest data, although Uber updates it, is still owned by Google. Ah. Uber can never monetize it, right? Um, so what we are also doing is we want to democratize exactly what Apple did, right? Apple democratized their phone and the operating software by giving it out to all the apps, I mean, all the application developers who can then put it on App Store. What we want to do is we want to be able to say, hey guys, come on, put the point of interest data and then kind of publish it on the map store so that you can monetize on all the time that you put in. So imagine a, a pharmacy delivery company in Kenya would then buy off this data from the 
grocery delivery company so they wouldn't lose five six seven eight months of point of interest data to become more and more efficient similarly a, a hobbyist uh, would be able to go to you know 1400 food trucks and say hey here's my entire journey to all these food trucks with all my reviews and stuff and kind of save it uh, sorry rather you know monetize it on the map store so that's the second uh, part of our eventual ambition and goal and third is you know we are pretty much building the digital twin of the real world on the map then the web3 infrastructure comes in where you can have more ownership you can basically mm -hmm. say from these many centimeter squares are my house and that is registered on my name my identity and then let's say if i sell it smart contracts so we are building that infrastructure here readiness for web3 when it comes no wow so that's unl now on top of unl the other venture that we built is called insuretech which does dynamic risk pricing for insurance companies on basis of UNL. So so once you have so much accuracy, you can then divide zip codes. And just to give you a simple example, there is a less risk of, if there's less risk of forest fires or earthquakes or volcanoes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then the premium prices can go down, which means everybody can afford it. Currently, yeah. it's the same premium across wherever you own a house, right? So those kind of problems uh, is what we aim to solve. And that's why we build these modeler ventures. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I feel like we are just scratching the surface um, uh, with uh, Apoorva Ruparel. He is the general partner, a general partner at Venture Rock in California. He's in the San Diego area. Um, I'd love to have you back and because and, I know your personal background, all your exits, all your success um, is, uh, is also fascinating. And you've lived all over the world purposefully. And, uh, and, and this is uh, this latest um, approach and thesis, I think, seems pretty cool. So thank you so much for being with us, uh, Apoorva. Appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. This Happy is, uh, yeah, Have thank you so much. This has been Con Games. I'm Michael Conniff. Um, we are here um, once a week, updated podcasts on all the major platforms, Apple, Amazon, Audible, and also on YouTube. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael Conniff, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-I-F-F. -F. Also, my website, michaelconniff.com. Um, make sure to um, leave a review, maybe give us a nice rating. We would appreciate that. Um, and in the meantime, we'll be back before you know it with more from The Accelerator. Thanks for listening.